Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, for the time being, people in Ontario will have to stay in place a little longer. You think we're going to be able to loosen all these restrictions by June 2nd? Greyhound Canada is permanently shutting down. How is this going to affect small communities in Ontario? Premier Doug Ford joins us to discuss the extended stay-at-home order and, of course, Hamilton's LRT announcement from earlier this week. And Canada's ethics watchdog has cleared Prime Minister Trudeau of any wrongdoing in connection with the Wee scandal, but his former finance minister was not so lucky. Andrew McDougall, professor of political science at the U of T, will join us to talk about that. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To begin with, let's circle around back and talk about the announcement yesterday from the Premier. As anticipated, uh, there has been an extension now with the stay-at-home order. Now, while he admits that public health measures are working, the Premier says, well, you can't take your foot off the pedal just yet. Premier Doug Ford says that the public health measures have taken some of the stress off the hospitals. The situation is slowly trending in a better direction. Make no mistake. We're not out of the woods yet. Which is why the province will remain under a stay-at-home order until June 2nd, which also includes extending the pause on outdoor activities. The Premier says if Ontarians can do that, we can save the summer. My goal is to have the most normal July and August possible. Ford went on to say that it wouldn't include things like sporting events or concerts, but he said that we can have things in a very good place this summer if we follow the public guidelines. Dave Woodard, Global News. Well, let's talk about those guidelines and, and about the possibilities here and the projections that are going forward. And uh, to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Peter Uni. Uh, Dr. Uni, of course, is the director of the Ontario Science Table and a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the University of Toronto. Doctor, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Let me add to you, too. Uh, you've had some concerns here, we say, about uh, some of the policies that the, the Ontario government has enacted and, and the methodology in which they've done uh, some things and probably not done a few other things that, that you and, and some of your fellow panel members had talked about previously. Uh, what's your reaction uh, and, and your assessment as to what the Premier uh, suggested yesterday? Oh, I completely agree with him. It's not time to take the foot uh, off the pedal. We need to continue to be on the brakes. And uh, it's now a bit a question how we do that. So the most important thing is a clear distinction between indoors and outdoors. And I actually heard that, you know, him saying that uh, the first step for opening would be just outdoors. And that's a great sign. Now we can discuss a little bit, you know, how uh, how this uh, can be handled. It's a, It depends a bit on how risk averse you are. You know, I think many of us at the science table or probably all of us feel we should acknowledge the need of people, you know, to have outdoor activity, etc. And since outdoors is much safer than indoors, there's always a possibility to create safe outdoor spaces as long as you actually prevent of what also the premier was saying. He was, you know, talking about his buddies, perhaps just, uh, you know, doing something, uh, you know, uh, except playing golf and just having a beer somewhere or whatever. I'm That's my interpretation. So the point is we need to make sure that there are no unfortunate byproducts of outdoor activity. But I think... And most of us believe that's doable. So we're on the right track now. And the question whether you already open outdoors right now or a bit later um, is perhaps secondary. I'm looking forward to see more happening outdoor. And the important part is not to move indoors. That's the important part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was kind of intrigued with his analogy, too, about his buddies going for a beer after playing golf. And, I, and then my immediate question, doctor, was well, I wonder where they're going because the bars are closed and the clubhouses and the golf courses aren't open either. So I don't know if they're just getting out of the trunk of their cars or whatever but anyway uh that no, was no no but that's uh, just to make a point that's really important what we just said you know if you open a golf course leave the clubhouses closed yeah. that's the point that that's what needs to happen 
And, and you suggested that when they finally reopened the ski hills late in the winter, uh, you know, as you said, the chalets and everything else were being closed. You could ski, exactly. then you get back in your car and drive home. And I guess we're going to pretty much use that same mindset, I guess, if we start the, the opening up, aren't we? Completely agree. Completely agree. And if we do that, you know, and just tell, give people very simple messages. I sound like a broken record. There's nothing new that I can tell. Stay two meters apart if somebody is not part of your household. If you can't because you play beach volleyball, wear a mask. It's as simple as that. And, and that, that, I was going to ask you about that. I was watching Global News last night, and uh, they were showing a number of the parks. Of course, we've had some very nice weather over the last two or three days. People are out there, and, and they're playing basketball, and they're playing volleyball, and, and things of this nature. Does that concern you? No, it does not. If I see, and that's perhaps the problem, they do it uh, without masks. That makes me slightly concerned. We need to be mm -hmm. aware of. You also can uh, actually transmit the virus outdoors for sure if you're not being careful. So what I would love to see is very clear messaging, you know, and people also reminding themselves of that. You know, if we play basketball, we shouldn't have, you know, really close contact, you know, so uh, how you defend, that's an issue. And uh, we should wear masks. If this is actually the case, same on playgrounds, kids on playgrounds, Grounds, you know, if they are closer than two meters, which happens when they play, they actually should wear masks. If you would just follow these simple rules, we're just good to go. If we do consider and, and, and go along these paths that, that you and, and the science table have been recommending and that the, the Premier seems to be embracing now, uh, and we do start opening up, say, you know, second week of June, let's, let's assume that the numbers are going to be good and they, they feel there's a comfort level there. Uh, talk to us, doctor, about the mask wearing. How much longer is that going to go on? Because obviously I want to juxtapose this with what we heard yesterday from the United yes. States that said if you've had both vaccines, you can don't need to wear a mask. I, th I think that to me seemed a little premature. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so first of all, you know, you just said it, it's if you have had both vaccine doses or are completely vaccinated, we're far, far away from that anyway. Yeah. Now we need to be aware of, to be, to be honest, many of my colleagues and uh, myself as, as well were a bit scared when we heard what the CDC was suggesting. It really depends on the situation. What is very clear is, you know, once we achieve the situation that people have had two doses of the vaccine, what you, for instance, can then easily do is thinking of a patio, you know, we would like to go back to those at the beginning patios should just have uh, on tables that are two and a half meters apart or so just people of the same household that's it you know on a table but once you have people vaccinated twice what this would mean for example is in this low risk setting people who are vaccinated twice can actually just have dinner together on a patio you know that stuff like that if you then think about indoor spaces we need to be very careful these vaccines are great you know the uh, the ones from Pfizer and Moderna absolutely but again remember we have these variances lurking in the background that uh, partially escape these vaccines so the vaccine effectiveness will decrease a bit and we just need to be very careful to keep this pandemic under control what does it mean from my personal perspective and we haven't discussed that at the table I would I would not think that it would be a good idea as long as the numbers are you know uh, too high to go into a cinema uh, we will be far away from that of course without the mask right now you know things will change but we're simply not there even if people are vaccinated twice we need to see how this all evolves with the new variants now you know the one original identified in india still the one original identified in brazil and uh, south africa they are challenging because even after two doses of the vaccines the effectiveness is perhaps only 65 percent which is high but it's not as high as the 90 95% that we have for, uh, you know, the B117 from the UK, for example. 
And as you've been telling us right from the get-go, whenever the vaccination program started uh, late last year, uh, even if you get both vaccines, this is, you're not bulletproof. I mean, the, 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 the no. virus is still out there, isn't it? Correct. But, you know, if you can then combine being vaccinated twice with outdoor space, then you gain some liberties, you know? That's really mm -hmm. quite quite cool, you know? You can then go to a restaurant with your friends, all of them are vaccinated twice, and that's just okay. The risk will then be very low because outdoors is perhaps 20 times safer than indoors. You're vaccinated as well. And even if you share a few droplets, if all of the people on the table are vaccinated, that's a different ball game then. So it's slow but steady, I guess, is, is your advice to the to the government at this stage. Let's let's not get ahead of ourselves. Uh, I, I want to talk about the numbers, if we could, too. Uh, you know, because uh, Dr. Williams, uh, who was part of the, the press conference yesterday, as you know, doctor, uh, suggesting he'd be comfortable if we were under a thousand cases per day, uh, and and maybe then he'd have a comfort level with with starting to ease some of these restrictions and do some of the things you've just recommended. Uh, we were at twenty seven hundred yesterday. We've got a long way to go, haven't we? Yes, but it may well be that the uh, the decrease will accelerate now. You know that the slope will get steeper. Why? Because we're good on the way with the uh, with the vaccine rollout. And you know when you look at the, uh, the this downward slope that we are seeing, parts of that are already you know the vaccines for sure. So this will accelerate a bit. The other distinction between inside and outside. I completely agree with Dr. Williams. If it comes to inside spaces, we need to be way below 1,000. And the question is a bit now, how risk averse are we regarding outdoors? I would suggest, you know, that the beginning of June at the latest, you know, that we would be in a position to open a little bit outdoor spaces and just have really clear, simple messages to people what to do. I want to... I'm not going to drag into the politics of this, but there are some elements, uh, some scientific and medical elements to this about borders and things of this nature. And I, and I know it's become a bit of a political football. I don't want to go there, but I do want to ask you about your comments about some uh, people from the World Health Organization that have been commenting, not just about Canada, but about a number of nations uh, that were slow to do this. And the, the concern they seem mm -hmm. to be raising, Doctor, uh, was about the, the rules and protocol that the World Health Organization themselves had set up that they say is almost biased against, uh, you know, reducing border access and things of this nature uh, as you've had a chance to assess this over the last number of months is, is there a problem there I think there is one, you know, of, when you look back at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, it was clear that um, the systems in place were biased against closing borders, you know, and uh, I think a lot of us have dramatically changed our opinion about that. The challenge is that uh, if you don't close early and strictly, if there are new variants around, then these variants may just uh, take hold or, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, that's how basically the entire uh, SARS-CoV-2 took hold globally. That was the problem. And I would believe that everybody has learned and I see the importance, you know, of free travel, etc. But probably we will all need to change our attitudes that we can react early to really lock things down when it's needed. And it will then in many people's minds, this will uh, just look as if it was too early. If it looks as if it was too early, it was probably just right that's the prevention paradox no mm -hmm. yeah I, I know that a uh, former prime minister of, of new zealand was commenting on this helen clark who's i guess involved in this task force uh, and suggesting that the current rules that are, are set up by the international health regulations uh say it discourages unnecessary what they call unnecessary restrictions does, is that a reflection of the fact that maybe we including the world health organization in many countries underestimated this a year and a half ago 
Oh, for sure. You know, the, the, the problem is this virus has such an evolutionary edge over, over SARS-1 uh, because it just uh, transmits very easily before we get symptomatic. And this is a complete game changer also if it comes to travel. So this all travels silently. And now remember how connected we all are worldwide. It just takes a few hours, you know, if something happened somewhere in a place, you know, like what happened in Wuhan originally, takes a few hours and it's uh, somewhere else in the world that's what we would need to uh, to avoid so this only works if you hit early and hit hard in the future for the next pandemic but that's also an issue now you know that we, we need to keep being alert with these new variants we need to continue to genetically sequence etc and if we have signals somewhere this also means difficult decisions travel wisely uh, very quickly, I, I know our time's tight, and I appreciate you joining us today, Doctor. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about herd immunity, too, because we've had those discussions in the past, and I think there was great anticipation of hoping to achieve that when the vaccination program started, especially in the United States, where they had such a great uptake on that. Those numbers have leveled off, as you've seen, uh, and now they're predicting they may only get to 65 70% of the population, which is nowhere near herd immunity. Uh, I don't know what our numbers are going to be like here in Canada. I know ours is accelerating pretty quickly as well. Uh, do we need herd immunity before we have a better comfort level here because that as you mentioned the variants are still going to be there yeah we need to be careful that we don't make this a mythical animal you know herd immunity mm -hmm. it will be challenging to achieve and we also need to be aware of our population is very variable in vaccine uptake, in behavior, et cetera, et cetera. So it, uh, what we can say is we want to achieve as much indirect protection of the entire population as possible. What does this mean? If I'm vaccinated twice, my... Um, uh, probability to be infected or to transmit decreases dramatically and this means I also protect people who are not vaccinated through that and we just want to achieve that as much as we can. You know, herd immunity in a way implies that you can bring this thing completely to a standstill and nothing happens anymore and it will probably die out. Are we, no, uh, are we just anywhere close to that? Forget it. Not at all. But what we are close to is, you know, within the next few months to have a situation where there is not this virus wildfires spreading uncontrolled anymore and where people even if some are you know not vaccinated yet such as young children etc or people who actually have a contraindication you know against uh, you know that in, in certain situations or people who are not only partially protected because they're immunosuppressed or so these people will then get protected why because everybody around them is vaccinated so we can achieve that but we should perhaps not say there's a threshold it can't be achieved that way because what we see is, you know, things are changing, viruses are mutating, the pandemic is out of control in many places in the world right now, luckily not anymore in Ontario, and this all needs to be taken into account. This will behave in the future like the flu, albeit a bit more tedious flu, and right now we make our way into this endemic uh, phase that hopefully will start in September, October, that we see, okay, we're in a different um, court now, we can deal with it, but we won't have uh, achieved herd immunity by then, probably, given everything we know now. So because of that, is there a growing evidence right now that, that this is probably going to be a result like the flu, uh, where we're going to have to get an annual shot for this, just like we would for the flu? Yeah, it may well, well, well be. I would bet, uh, you know, a lot on that I will need to, even if I'm vaccinated twice uh, by September, uh, that I will need to get the shot next year. Doctor, always a pleasure to have you on here to add some clarity to what's going on here. Thank you so much for this. Uh, stay well, and we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Yes, you too.
Good luck and have Take a good care. weekend. And you too. Dr. Pete Uni, of course, the director of the Ontario Science Table and a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's uh, get into the Greyhound Canada story, which uh, I suppose didn't shock a whole lot of people because they had actually shut down operations in, in the, the western provinces some time ago. But yesterday, Greyhound announced that they are permanently cutting all of its bus routes across the country. Global's Brianna Carnegie has the details. After 92 years of service, Greyhound Canada is closing up shop. It's been a tough decision and, and one, you know, we've taken with a heavy heart. Senior Vice President Stuart Kendrick says the company's remaining bus routes in Ontario and Quebec will end for good at midnight tonight. You know, that does unfortunately, uh, you know, end our service in, in Canada. The cross-border service into the U.S. from Toronto and Montreal and Vancouver, that remains not impacted. The motor coach company has struggled for years with declining ridership, increasing competition and deregulation. Challenges escalated amid the COVID-19 pandemic when Greyhound was forced to suspend service due to travel restrictions. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. Not the first business we've heard that's uh, been impacted by the, the shutdowns and the pandemics, etc. But this one does have uh, some serious implications for an awful lot of people. Joining us to talk about this, Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Marvin, good to have you back on the show. Hope you're doing well these days. I'm great, thank you, Bill. Glad to be with you. I'm sure you weren't surprised. I don't think too many people were surprised by this. But uh, this is going to leave an awful lot of people high and dry. You know, that's that's the interesting question here, if I can say it to you like that. No, I'm not surprised, and COVID in this case was probably the straw that broke the camel's back, but it, it wasn't the biggest factor. The biggest factor is we use different ways to get around now than we did once upon a time. Way back in the 70s, I can remember, because I was living in a small town in southern Ontario, uh, needing to go to Toronto to do something and taking a, a Greyhound bus from, I think it was Simcoe, Ontario, to Hamilton, then changing buses in Hamilton, going to Toronto, and then I think getting a subway to go to some place in, in, uh, in Toronto that way. Uh, today, what would you do? Well, uh, we've got so many other services and in particular it's been the rise of go government of ontario transit that's that's done so much now for uh intercity transit in this area and in essence what they did and i don't mean to be critical of a government but in essence what they did was uh, took the most lucrative routes away from greyhound made them public sector thanks to go and then said okay greyhound you you make your money by servicing all the small towns and small communities and and it just really wasn't a way to go. So you were right, 2018, Greyhound announced it was no longer going to service the West. They were going to focus on Ontario, Quebec, and a bit into the Maritimes. COVID comes along, they couldn't do that because it was a non-essential thing. We didn't want people traveling, uh, and they just sat there with buses parked. Uh, and finally this year they said, look, we can't even afford to do that anymore. We're going to get out of this business. Um, is it going to have a big impact in small towns? I really don't know. You know, in the 50 years that have passed, car ownership has, has grown. Uh, today there are actually more cars owned in Canada than there are people in Canada. Some people have two cars. Some have three um, you know, it's a funny world we live in, and I think if I compare this to what happened out west, 
while there was a lot of, of talk when they canceled the Western service of how detrimental it was going to be, we, we didn't see that. We did see, and this will happen here as well, we did see some entrepreneurs step up and say, well, I think I can make money servicing this market or that market or creating a little bus link here. So we'll probably see some regional people pop up to help fill the void. But I think it's really just more an end of a certain era. And you're right. I mean, I was one of those guys back in the 70s, too. I mean, go back and forth. I mean, you know, going to school, you couldn't afford a car. Uh, and, you know, visiting my brother in Western, and, and by the way, I saw Mayor Holder uh, on the national news the other day uh, com- concerned about this as well. I mean, it's a university town, and a lot of students uh, use, the, 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 or did anyway, use Greyhound to get back and forth, uh, you know, from wherever town they're from into the university campus. So there's that concern. Uh, but the element, I, I get what you're saying about Go Transit and how they seem to have almost pushed these guys to the side. But the reality is, is they don't have the same network. Uh, I, I mean, you know, I, I, we've, we've been talking for years now, Marvin, you and I, about a number of, of cities and towns that are begging the Ontario government to extend GO service. They don't have it. Uh, you know, it's great here in southern Ontario. We, we're kind of in the mother load here, and it's fabulous that we're so well connected. Uh, but if you want to go to Ottawa, well, you can't really use it. You can take the train if you can afford it, but not everybody can afford that either. So there, there is a void here. Yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying, Bill. I'm just not sure it's as big as we want it to be. Um, again, just an example, McMaster University has a GO uh, transit hub on yep. campus. It didn't do that in the 1970s, but we actually have a place where GO buses regularly come and go. You have the choice sometimes of taking the GO bus to downtown Hamilton or to, to McMaster, and then it links up to the GO train. Um, it, it's not as hard to get around as it once was. And while I am sure there are some students who will be stuck, at the same time, being innovative young people, whether they start to use more Uber and more Lyft, which didn't exist 50 years ago, or they, they do more ride-sharing and car-sharing, um, there just are so many other things. And, and to me, it's like this, Bill. If I took Air Canada and said, okay, Air Canada, I know you make a lot of your money by flying between Toronto, Ottawa, and Montreal, but I'm going to do that now. I, I'm the government. I'm going to do that now. You get to fly to Fredericton, and you get to fly to Gimli, and you get to fly to the small markets. I'm not sure it would be economically viable. With Greyhound, they could subsidize visiting the small towns, by having strong roots between the bigger cities. When you take that away from them, I think that was beginning to doom them right from the beginning. So are you confident that private operators may come in here and see an opportunity, or are we just looking at bus transit as something that the government's going to do and that's about it? No, I think there will be an opportunity. Now, here's the problem for the private sector at the moment. We're still locked down. And the, the yeah. official story from government is, as much as possible, just stay where you are, shelter in place, don't go anywhere. So Greyhound is shutting down today. No one's going to fill the void in the month of May. No one's going to step forward in the month of June. But if there is unmet demand, if there is a, a, a hue and cry, what are we going to do in, I'll just make up a name here and say Caledonia, or what are we going to do in Cayuga? How do we deal with this? If there are enough people who have that problem, the private sector will normally uh, see that, and an entrepreneur will say, well, I'm going to start something. Uh, Bill, you, you probably remember the stories uh, of snowbirds last November who were mm-hmm. desperate to go to their places in the United States, but how do you get the car across the border, and how do you do this, and how do you do this? So entrepreneurs said, well, I can figure out a way. You know, we'll have a helicopter that flies you here. We'll ship the car over that way. And even though it seemed very expensive to many of us, 
there were people who stepped forward and said, yeah, I'll, I'll take advantage of that service. So, you know, if there is unmet demand, I think entrepreneurs will step forward, but they won't do that until the second half of this year or maybe 2022. We need the rest of the economy to start get back to normal before that will happen. Well, that, and that's the key to everything, isn't it? I mean, you're absolutely right. We're not, we're not supposed to be going anywhere. And I, I, I don't think I'd want to get on a bus right now for 25 other people at, at this stage, just, you know, given the way the virus is spreading. Uh, and that's a concern to everybody. But, you know, to your point about the way things were back in the early days in the 70s, and, and even beyond that, of course, where a lot of people use this, uh, the competition has been gone. I mean, we, we used to have a carrier here in southern Ontario called Canada Coach yep. uh, that was part of that as well. I remember when I was a kid going to, you know, if I had to go to a Leaf game, I, I didn't have a car, uh, you'd hop on the bus downtown to the bus terminal at, at Rebecca Street and bingo, you're down in Toronto in no time at all. They've, they've long gone right now too, so there's not a whole lot there. And I, if, I can't see anybody in the private sector stepping forward because they're going to say, well, where's the business case? Yeah, well, the business case is based on demand, and so uh, that's why I'm saying I don't think there will be a nationwide or even an Ontario-wide response, but if it turns out you need roots. So, Bill, you, you may or may not be familiar, your listeners may be familiar, there's a, a company in London, Ontario called the Robert Q. Bus, and growing up near London, Ontario, there were a lot of people who needed to get to Toronto Airport. How do you get to Toronto Airport? And because the flights are scheduled at different times, even something like a Greyhound wouldn't work. Well, Robert Q., which was a, a travel agency, said, well, we're, we're going to buy a minivan, and we're going to help people get to, in, in London's case, going to Detroit on one hand and Toronto on the other. I can remember my mother using Robert Q. to get around, and, and it's worked very well for them. So there was demand, and the private sector stepped up. Now, they aren't running Robert Q. buses to Grand Bend, and they're not running Robert Q. buses to Chatham. You know, you need enough of a volume to, to make it economically worthwhile, as you say, the business case. But if there are some key underserved areas that need this, I think someone might step forward when we get to the side of COVID. However, you know, if you truly are a small town, my hometown of Aylmer, which is a population of around 7,500 people, if once a week or twice a week somebody needs to go somewhere, that's not enough demand that I can set up a bus company and, and run it successfully. And so those people will be stuck for an alternative. Well, we'll see what happens in the days and weeks ahead. As you say, the initial response here is, is a little, uh, I guess, concerning, but uh, uh, the numbers will dictate, I guess, what's going to happen. Marvin, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this. Stay well. I will. Thank you, Bill. Marvin Ryder, of course, from the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Please to welcome back to the program after a, a very busy couple of days at Queen's Park. Uh, the Premier of the Province of Ontario, Doug Ford, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Mr. Premier, thank you so much for the time. Great to talk with you again. Oh, it's great to be on with you again, Bill. I know, I know we want to talk about your announcements yesterday in the lockdown, and I'm going to get there in just a couple of seconds. But uh, uh, first and foremost, uh, this was a big day in Hamilton yesterday uh, when your transportation minister, Caroline Mulrooney, joined us uh, by Zoom, of course. Uh, and i got to give credit where it's due, Mr. Premier. You had said some time ago that if Hamilton wants an LRT, we're going to find a way to make it happen. Uh, and it looks like you've taken a giant leap with that yesterday. We, we did. And, you know, so I, I give all, all the credit to uh, Caroline, her team, uh, along with the, the, the federal government came to the, the uh, you know, to the table and uh, Mayor Eisenberg as, as well. So, uh, you know, we're, we're going to keep going. 
Yeah, interesting to listen to what Minister Mulroney yesterday, though, and, and her comments are also echoed by uh, Catherine McKenna, who's the Federal Infrastructure Minister, who was in on this as well. That was the way, where the partnership, as you mentioned, just went. Uh, but they, they were sending, a, I thought, a pretty strong message. Uh, and they said, uh, both Minister Mulroney and Minister McKenna said, this money is for light rail transit only, period, end of sentence, which I think is sending a message. I mean, you and I have talked in the past about some of the obfuscation from city council. Well, what can we do this with it, or can we do this, or can we do bus uh, They're saying, you know, the debate's over, the discussion's over, here's the money. Uh, is, is that essentially the message you want to send to council here as they go forward? Yeah, we, you know, we, we worked hard on, on this, and right from the day I got elected, I, I said there's a billion dollars on, on the table. We bumped up uh, that to a billion seven. The uh, Mayor Eisenberger ran on this. Uh, he was elected, and he has to work with the city council, and we've, we've put together a package of $3.4 billion, and uh, ho- hopefully they'll, they'll, they'll pass this, and We'll cross that bridge uh, when we get to it. If they don't, they don't pass. They voted on it, uh, as you know, Bill, a few times, and mm-hmm. uh, they've always wanted to, to move forward with this uh, out to Eastgate Mall and uh, or Eastgate and Centennial uh, from McMaster. So um, we're, we're doing what uh, the, the mayor wanted and what council voted for. I know there's uh, a few people uh, on council that don't want it, but that's going to be uh, their choice to work this out. Exactly. Okay, let's move on to uh, to yesterday. Uh, as uh, anticipated, uh, when you extended the uh, the, the emergency measures, uh, we we kind of figured that there was going to be an extension of the lockdown as well, and you did announce that yesterday. Uh, I know you've been busy this morning, Mr. Premier, but uh, earlier this hour, I talked to Dr. Peter Uni, of course, from the uh, Ontario Science Table, the, uh, the committee that you appointed, uh, and he's basically giving you a thumbs up. He says, this is the way we should be proceeding right now. Talk to us about how you made this decision. Well, listening to uh, the, the chief medical officer, the local medical officer, uh, along along with uh, you know the, the science table, and we, we just uh, what I'm what I'm saying. There's no one, no one wants to open this economy up more than I do. Open up out, out, outdoor activities uh, more than I do. But uh, we, I'm just asking people, just hang in there, hang in there for a few more weeks. That gives us a little more runway to get another million and a half people uh, vaccinated. And I, I just, I don't want to ruin uh, the summer, the July and August, if we open everything up. And I understand uh, I got a lot of pals calling me about the golf. And, and you open up golf, you're open up all the team sports. Then you're going to start opening up the restaurants and so on and so forth. I'm just asking people, hang in there. Uh, you know, last time we opened up uh, and the numbers shot up. And if the numbers shoot up again, uh, man, there goes our summer. So I'm just asking people to to hang in there uh, till the the beginning of June, and then we're going to start opening up. Uh, we're going to do it gradually and safely, and uh, just uh, hope to God uh, uh, no more uh, variants are coming into our country. Dr. Williams kind of hinted at that yesterday, didn't he, Premier, with his comments, uh, suggesting that, that maybe they were a little too hasty to, to lift some of the restrictions uh, during that second wave, uh, and, and we got caught in it and saw this wave. And that's not pointing any fingers of culpability here. It's just that, you know, you learn, hopefully, from, from what's happened in a situation like this. And uh, it's, it's obviously a very concerning situation because of these variants and the new cases. Uh, are you confident that, uh, that within the next couple of weeks and by June 2nd, uh, we're going to see some steady progress? I know you've mentioned that the numbers are looking a lot better now than they did even three weeks ago uh but that, that's a pretty steep curve we're going to have to attain to, to get to where dr williams would like us to be yeah I'm, i i wouldn't say i'm confident i'm optimistic uh we we see the the numbers gradually slowly 
going in the right direction. And uh, there's so many different factors, be it the positivity rate or, or the ICU capacity is probably the single largest uh, issue, making sure we have the capacity within our hospitals uh, to, to handle any of the uh, uh, patients coming in. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm very confident. I, I, I want to open up and, and get people back to semi-normal and, and have a great July, a great August, and a, and a good June. We're, we're going to be vaccinating uh, kids from 12 to 17 years of age. We're going to get everyone done in a month. And I, I just want to thank the, the people uh, in, in Hamilton for all their great work, the people at the vaccination centers, mobile units. Yeah, I, I sat back the other day and I... Uh, you know, I thought 140,000 needles into people's arms, sometimes 133,000. But I, I, I thought, man, these, these guys are heroes. Uh, just imagine doing 140,000 needles in arms in 12 hours across the province. Uh, those are just staggering numbers. And we're, we're going to continue uh, doing that. And I'm, I'm you know, we're, we're going to have a, a two-shot summer instead of a one-shot summer. I, I conf- confident about the supply chain. I know there have been a lot of problems uh, ever since December, really, when this whole thing started. Uh, and there was some concern about AstraZeneca, and, and now obviously that seems to be off the table. But it looks like Moderna and Pfizer uh, have stepped up, and, and we're hoping uh, that those uh, numbers that they talked about, about delivery, are going to come through. Are, are you pretty confident that, that we're going to have the product that we need? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm confident that we, we will, uh, at least for the forecast that we see a month out. We see a larger volume of uh, Pfizer coming in. That's kind of predominant, the, the Pfizer, and more Moderna are coming in. Uh, I, I'm always concerned about the, the supply. Uh, but what I'm even more concerned about, Bill, is the variants coming across our, our borders from around the world. 90% of every case in Ontario is related to a variant. And these are deadly variants from Brazil and, and the U.K. And, and India, South African uh, variant. Uh, that that's what I'm concerned about. We have it seems like we have two sets of rules: one for the land borders, that Buffalo is the second largest airport in Ontario now, and uh, thousands of people are, are walking across to avoid the quarantine. And and at Pearson, uh, we we had to step in there and started to do testing. Uh, but since in the last few months, since January, we've seen 3,200 people come across uh, uh, through Pearson uh, with COVID. That, that that is a problem. That's a massive, massive problem uh, right now. And I'm, I'm just asking the federal government uh, tighten up the the borders, uh, even even for a short period of time. Uh, then let, let's get this under control. We can't uh, have a big leak in the roof. Water's pouring in as we're on the other side putting needles into arms. So we we, we definitely uh, need those borders tightened up. Well, I know you've seen the report from the World Health Organization uh, from earlier this week too that suggested that you know they got to rethink their rules too and the protocol that they put in place and a lot of countries including canada they said really kind of dropped the ball and, and just underestimated that so uh hopefully we've learned from that uh premier i know how busy you are uh, thank you sp- for spending a few minutes with us uh lots more to come on this i guess in the days and weeks ahead and i'm sure we'll talk again soon yeah th- thanks so much bill and i can't wait to get up in, in person and sit down with you and do an interview in person i and I, I believe we can do that in the summer i just want to thank the people of hamilton everyone's doing a great job Hang in there. We're going to get through this. Thanks again, Premier. Take care and stay well.
Okay, you as well. Thank you. Ontario Premier Doug Ford joining us here on the Bill Kelly Show. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Wee scandal is uh, still kicking around in Ottawa. As we know, the Ethics Commissioner has done some investigations, and uh, the Ethics Watchdog has now found that the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, did not breach the Conflict of Interest Act over failing to recuse himself from cabinet discussions to have the Wee charity. Uh, the former Federal Finance Minister, Bill Morneau, well, different story altogether. Terry Pedwell has details. While the Ethics Commissioner says Justin Trudeau did not breach ethics rules, a separate report from Mario Dion found that former Finance Minister Bill Morneau did violate the rules and should have recused himself. He says Morneau gave the Wee Charity preferential treatment by permitting his ministerial staff to disproportionately assist it when it sought federal funding. For his part, the Prime Minister says the watchdog has confirmed what he's been saying from the beginning, that his actions were always aimed at getting financial support to young people during the pandemic as fast as possible. Terry Pedro, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. And as you might expect, the opposition parties are not pleased with the results of this. Uh, they were kind of hoping to get the prime minister in their crosshairs once again. Uh, but uh, it is what it is. Mr. Dion's report is out there and uh, being analyzed by a number of people that are looking at what has gone on over the last six months. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Andrew McDougall. Andrew, of course, is a professor of political science with the University of Toronto. Uh, always a pleasure. Thanks so much, Professor. Good to have you back on the program today. Always a pleasure for me, too. Uh, let's let's talk about the analysis of this. And, and as I say, there's there's a couple of ways to look at this. There's the opposition party reaction to this. We can talk about that in a couple of seconds. Uh, but Mr. Dion seemed to be pretty laser focused on exactly what he was investigating here. Uh, are, are you are you concurring with the results of the ethics commissioner here? I mean, he did a pretty thorough job in, in his investigation, and he knows that act inside out. So I don't think anybody's questioning, you know, the thoroughness of the investigation or, you know, the fact that he was free to conduct it. So uh, the, I think the, the report sort of stands on its own, and, and, and most people are, are pretty much, uh, I think, going to accept that. And even the prime minister has said that it basically is, is backing up what he's been, been saying all along. It's, uh, I guess, what, what is the watershed off a lot of the time is, is that term conflict of interest. And, and uh, it's, there's such a broad interpretation by some people about exactly what that is. I mean, if you knew somebody uh, and you voted for it, then uh, there must be a conflict of interest. But there's, there's, there's pretty specific guidelines as to what they define by conflict of interest. You know, was there a financial gain? Uh, you know, were, were you bettering your own position and, and things of this nature? Uh, and I think that's the lens that, uh, that Mr. Dion seemed to look at here and basically said that the prime minister... Uh, uh, probably, uh, you know, did not step over the line, but probably could have handled this differently. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of different ways you can kind of look at this. I mean, there's the sort of technicalities on the act that the uh, that the, the commissioner was looking at, and then there's, of course, the political optics that comes at it, and those are two very different things. And the commissioner said that, you know, as far as the act goes, you know, the prime minister didn't do anything to unnecessarily, you know, further the private interest of the charity or his own interest, but... You know, there was obviously an optics problem that were there, and, and the prime minister has, has acknowledged that. It's a different story, of course, with the finance minister, where the access that was given to the Wee Charity by his staff did actually cross the line. And so he, he's calling him out for that. Um, you know, at this point, you know, this is a little bit, you know, kind of looking in the rearview mirror here. Most people have already known a lot of this, but it's still not a good look for the government. Yeah, it, it, I'm getting the sense in reading the, uh, Mr. Dion's uh, report on this that, that a lot of the, the the heavy lifting about you know forging this partnership with we and and eventually with the finance was done by Morno's office and staff, uh, not necessarily through the PMO, uh, and and then it was presented to cabinet. And as Mr. Dion pointed out in the report, and I think this is a, probably a key part to this, uh, when they were going to discuss this at cabinet, the prime minister I guess pulled it from the agenda and said, "I want this investigated further," which kind of indicates there was some sense of due diligence here. 
Yeah, I mean, I think for a lot of people, this is going to be a little bit of splitting hairs here. Um, I mean, definitely, there's clearly there was, there was a relationship between the prime minister and his family and this charity. Um, but, you know, when it came to the actual you know, operations of this particular program, uh, you know, it looks like the prime minister recognized that there might be an optics problem there and may have intervened a little bit. And the ethics commissioner seems to have given him a pass that, that it was sufficient to, to keep him out of, out of trouble. I think a lot of people are still going to kind of look at that and say, that's still pretty close. Um, you know, even if he did, you know, ask for extra scrutiny, there was a, a clear connection there. But, you know, it, it looks like it didn't quite uh, make it to, to, uh, to a violation of the act or, or, or ethical conduct. Morneau, again, a little bit different. There, it looks like, you know, he was doing the heavy lifting with this, with this program, and the We Charity got uh, treatment that it wouldn't otherwise have had. And he did have a pre-existing uh, 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 affiliation with We anyway, didn't he? He had a family member, I think, that had actually worked for them at one point. Uh, so there's, I guess, an argument to be made that there was, uh, you know, some some favoritism that was going on in that particular situation. Well, that's the way it kind of looked. I mean, it, that, that goes for both the prime minister and the, the finance minister. Both of them had connections uh, and family connections to the charity. What this really comes down to is whether or not their official positions you know, were used in a way to further those interests. In the case of the prime minister, the answer was no. But in the case of the finance minister, the answer appears to be yes. And and this is where the, the commissioners come down on that. I, I, I'm going to backtrack just a little bit here to, to when this was, you know, hot news late last year. Uh, and and the, you know, the questions that were being asked, which I thought were all very pertinent, uh, was, you know, these, these guys are not neophytes. I mean, you know, they've both been in politics for a long, long time, and they understand the lay of the land here. Uh, conflict of interest or perceived conflict of interest, the easiest way to avoid that was to simply, as, as Mr. Dion said, recuse yourself for the vote. I mean, it, you know, it was at that time, you know, we knew it was going to pass. You knew the cabinet was going to give this a thumbs up. They don't need those two votes for it to happen. I, I, in hindsight, I don't understand why neither Mr. Morneau or the prime minister didn't just simply say, I'm going to take a pass on this one because there might be a perceived interest or conflict of interest here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you were a liberal, this looked like an absolute own goal for the uh, for the liberal team. Um, and, and I think anybody who was watching this from the outside was a little surprised at, at how ham-fisted both of them uh, handled this, given the, the obvious family connections, that some kind of a red flag should have come up. And I think there were a lot of people that were kind of tearing their hair out at that time that, that this was allowed to, to happen, and nobody sort of picked up on what this might look like once it, once it got out. I mean, to a degree, you know, people have been pointing to the fact that, you know, this isn't the first time that Trudeau's gotten into a little bit of trouble with ethics. Um, and, you know, his family, there's been a couple of other instances in the past. And so people have been trying to point to kind of a, a pattern of behavior. Um, you know, fair or not, you know, those, those have been the headlines over, over the time that he's been, been in office. But, yeah, I mean, for people that are not in those circles, looking at this constellation of people and how well they all know each other and how this was going to be awarded, it looked like it should have been pretty obvious to a lot of people from the beginning that this might be an issue. But in the, in the event, it, it, it didn't seem to set up any real red flags. Well, yeah, let's, let's, you're right. To put this in proper context, I mean, this, this is the third time the two of these guys have been investigated by the ethics commissioner, both Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Morneau, twice previous to this. And uh, uh, and that's why I, I think it's a little disingenuous for some of the opposition parties to be jumping all over Mr. Dion in, in this report right now. Uh, they certainly embraced the, the, the two previous reports against the prime minister, which found that he was in violation. Uh, and so, you know, I don't understand the difference in this one, but I guess that's, that's the politics of it. But this whole thing uh, was, I guess... You, Really, you couldn't say it could have been avoided, but they really, really could have diffused an awful lot of the concern and criticism here if they just stepped away from this thing. Yeah, I mean, and I think they, once this was all pointed out, though, they did 
move to get ahead of this. I mean, Trudeau and, and Morneau both admitted that they could have handled this better. And I think they recognized, um, you know, as the thing was exploding, what you know that they had misjudged uh, this situation, and and backed off. But to a, to a degree that was a little bit too little too late and, and some of the political damage had been done. But I mean, I think everybody involved recognized that this could have been handled better. Is, uh, is this much to do about nothing? And I'm not trying to trivialize this. I mean, it's, a, it's an ethics violation and, and the investigation was, was quite right to move forward on this. But as John Iverson wrote about in the, in the post today, he says probably more people are concerned like, oh yeah, okay, they did that. When, when's my check coming, by the way? Uh, you know, we're, we're still wrapped up in, in pandemics and, and relief and things of this nature. Uh, is this really on a whole lot of people's radar outside of the bubble in Ottawa? Yeah, all good candles come to an end, and I think that this one is very much uh, at that point where it's beginning to fade for a lot of people. There's nothing really new that's coming out of, of this report. I think most people have known about this for a while. They've made up their minds on it. Um, but the reality of the situation is, is that people have got much bigger things on their minds right now, dealing with the pandemic and, and sort of the, the problems that are sort of surrounding that. And at this point, I think a lot of people are going to kind of look at this, say to themselves, you know, there probably isn't a whole lot more here. Um, you know, there's other things that we need to uh, we need to do, and there aren't really any consequences that come out of this either for for either one of them. So, you know, I I think that this will get some political play, obviously, but whether or not this is going to be driving the political agenda, it becomes a little bit difficult to see that. Well, I wondered about that too, and again, not to be dismissive about this, but I mean, you know, one of the other violations uh, that he was investigated for, the Prime Minister, that is, was SNC Lavalin, of course. Uh, and, and I know the opposition parties, especially the conservatives, tried to make a big deal out of that and thought that was going to be a huge factor in the last election. Turned out not to be. Most Canadians said, yeah, we, we've moved on. Uh, you know, uh, We don't have a whole lot of trust in any politician, by the way, so why should this even surprise us? So I'm wondering if that's the mindset they're going to go to. But on the other hand, I guess this is the game of politics, and if you're the opposition parties, you're trying to grab onto something like this and try to run with it as best as you can anyway. Oh, yeah. I mean, the opposition is going to try to make as much uh, hay out of this as they possibly can. I mean, it is interesting that, you know, we do keep forgetting that this is a minority parliament and, you know, the opposition could bring down uh, the government whenever it, it wanted to. The reality, though, is that there's other overriding political calculations right now, given given the pandemic, and it's unlikely that they're going to do that. Um, I mean, the, the government has got a tremendous opportunity being in charge right now to make itself you know, look good in, in terms of dealing with the crisis. And this obviously comes with risks as well. But, you know, they're, they've got the spotlight. The opposition hasn't got a whole lot, uh, you know, to, to do right now um, in, in face of that. So when something like this comes out, of course, they're going to make as much, uh, uh, you know, they're going to try to take advantage of this as much as they can. Well, they don't have too many tools in the uh, in the, the you know the toolbox right now, do they? I mean, you know, it, it's you know they're probably treading on on very thin ice if they just start to start criticizing the government's relief packages, uh, because people are getting those checks and they're going to say, "What do you mean if we elect you, you're not you're not going to cut us off?" So there's that. So the you know the, I guess they have to kind of gravitate to stuff like this to try to to do their job as it was as an opposition party, because there's not a whole lot else here in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, people seem, as you say, are focused on other things right now and and not understanding their personal feelings about uh, the prime minister or anybody else uh you know as long as they're getting those government checks and there's just some relief there at all uh they're not necessarily going to be satisfied but they're not going to be up in arms well i think there's definitely a, a consensus that you know a lot of people are hurting that the government needs to move you know whoever is in charge to to help that i mean we've seen this in the united states you know whether or not you are a democrat or republican you know there was this agreement that you know people needed you know financial and economic support the government of canada has been on the same page the opposition party doesn't look like it's it's too far off of that. So they can't really 
um, you know, make too much or be t- pretend that they're really too different here in terms of policies. It looks like everybody would be sort of broadly on the same uh, the same page when it came to those sorts of things. So this kind of uh, of an event offers an opportunity to offer some kind of method of distinguishing themselves, you know, from the government and saying, look, there's corruption that's going on in the government. We would do a better job uh, when the next election comes around, which, again, as a minority parliament, we don't know when that's coming, but it'll probably be you know, sooner rather than later. Um, you know, you should give us a look and uh, and see what we can do. But do you anticipate this is going to change public opinion very much? I mean, uh, I, I get the sense, that, and I'm just going to use the SNC-Lavalin or the Aga Khan situation, the other two situations the Prime Minister was investigated for. Uh, if you don't like Justin Trudeau, you don't like him anyway, and, and you're going to like him even less now because of this. If, you, if you're ambivalent towards that, you're going to kind of shrug your shoulders and say, yes, yeah, so what? So I, I'm not so sure there's going to be any massive change in, in public opinion because of this. Yeah, if it weren't for the uh, if it weren't for the pandemic and when this broke last summer, I think that this would have been a much bigger deal, especially once again given the uh, minority parliament. But you know, this was a very unique time, and so the liberals I think got a little more uh, leash than they otherwise would have. At this point, I'm not sure that this is going to change a lot of people's minds. I think that this is people have taken a look at this, they've made a decision about what they think about it, um, and you know, even with all the stuff that's coming out today it's not really again anything particularly new so it becomes hard to see how this is going to change anybody's minds on this i think most people think of this as kind of last summer's uh, you know a political scandal and, and people are kind of moving on and and they're worried about other things now and we're heading into the summer season and wondering when with the lockdowns going to be over i mean you're right there's uh, a number of other things right now that seem to have our attention uh professor always great to get your perspective thanks for spending some time with us today really appreciate it No problem. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Professor Andrew McDonald, of course, political science professor at the University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.